If you have your Bibles um, or whatever device you may be using, I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians as we uh, continue our study of what really is a, a powerful um, letter from the Apostle Paul written out of much anguish of heart and, and personal suffering. Um, and as you turn, um, I do want to just take a moment to encourage you. Um, it's not too late to sign up. So we've got the tables in the foyer uh, to sign up for the 40-day prayer covenant. Now, I know that whenever you're, you're just kind of starting a new habit, and this is a, a new habit, um, it's not easy, and it's easy to forget. So, you know, if you have stumbled out of the gates, <laughs> you've signed up, but you, you haven't been as consistent as you would like in terms of praying, don't lose heart. It's hard to start new practices. But let me encourage you, it is worth it. I believe that you will experience just a, a special sense of God's presence as you commit yourself to praying this prayer for yourself and at least one other person. So I don't want you to miss out on the blessing, and it will bless the entire church. One of the things that I've discovered just as I've prayed this is um, that it gives me a framework from which to pray for people that I may not even know, who may be strangers to me. I don't know about what their personal needs may be. And so I can still pray for them by your grace. Make being with so-and-so, loving you and obeying you, their highest priority. I can pray that God would empower them to love others the way he loves them. I can pray that you would wash their sins away. You can still pray many of the lines of this covenant, even for people who may be unchurched. They may not be Christians at all, and it becomes a very evangelistic uh, way to um, proceed as well. So let me encourage you. And if you haven't signed up yet, please do. And if you've, some of you um, are praying this, but you haven't signed up. And I'm just asking you to do that just so I know, um, and then I can kind of just check in with you and see how it's going as you pray the prayer, and, and so that I, too, can be praying for you and for the people that you've covenanted to pray uh, for. Now, as we turn our attention to 2 Corinthians 3, our passage for today is set within the context of Paul's defense. He's been defending the validity of, um, of and the genuineness of his apostolic ministry among the Corinthians. And he's writing in the context um, of a church that has had uh, apparently these traveling teachers, these visitors uh, that have come among them, and they have been undermining the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, in effect, they, they are invalidating his apostolic authority and his ministry among the Corinthians. And so previously, Paul has shown, so as he's already proceeded through his, his kind of defense, um, he has shown um, uh, that his, his, the suffering that he was enduring um, was not for any personal benefit, but was in fact patterned after the ministry, the life of Jesus himself, and that his suffering was being used by the Lord for great effect. That is, his suffering was bearing good fruit, and, and, and part of that good fruit was the establishment of the Corinthian church. And Paul has declared that his suffering shows the genuineness 
of his love for those he is ministering toward and for. Third, he has reminded them that there has always been consistency between his um, uh, personal character and his preaching. That is, there's been consistency between the man and the message. And so he's, he's demonstrating that there's actually good evidence, even beyond his, you know, his own personal declaration, that his ministry is from the Lord, that it is genuine, that he is, in fact, called as an apostle. And in our passage uh, this morning, Paul is turning his attention to another mark, another mark of his ministry among the Corinthians. He introduces the idea that um, his has been a ministry of the Spirit, that his ministry has been dependent on the Spirit, the evidence of which is the changed lives of the Corinthian believers themselves. And this is a truth that we too, in the 21st century, we need to wrap our minds around uh, so that we too are reminded that the only way that we as individuals and as a church, the only way that we will be able to fulfill the calling that God has given to us is as uh, uh, we uh, learn to understand and appreciate and to depend on the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. With that in mind, would you stand now for the reading and hearing of the Word of God? 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 6. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Would you pray with me? O God, your word cannot return to you void. And so bless to our souls the preaching and the hearing of your word strengthen the faith of those who believe, and sow the good seed of faith in the hearts of those who as yet may not believe. And may we all learn to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and run with patience the race set out before us. In the name of the Redeemer, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So this passage, as I I think about it, it kind of breaks down into three parts, three parts. And the central topic, the central theme um, is the Holy Spirit. In verses 1 through 3, and it's a little different than what I have on your outline, but what you're going to see is, in these letters of recommendation, is a picture of how the Holy Spirit changes lives. In the second part, Paul's going to talk about his need, 
um, for the Holy Spirit, that he would not be sufficient in his own strength to conduct um, and pursue the calling that God has laid upon him. And, you know, uh, uh, the application is, uh, neither can we. We need the Holy Spirit as well. And then the third section is uh, just verse 6, where he begins to, to show us, and he's going to continue this theme for the, for, uh, throughout chapter 3, and that is that the Holy Spirit is central to the new covenant in contrast with the old covenant made at Mount Sinai through Moses. So the central theme, and what we, we want to get is to understand, to renew our appreciation for the Holy Spirit, and for our, uh, our need of the Holy Spirit. Okay, So we want to renew our appreciation for the Holy Spirit. And so Paul begins by using the ancient and still a continuing practice of writing letters of recommendation to make the point that the Corinthians themselves serve as a letter of recommendation for Paul's apostolic ministry among them. Paul begins... This, this passage with a rhetorical question. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? You know, he, he asks this question because it sounds like he is, although the rhetorical, you know, the, the answer he um, is wanting is no. He's, he's not just simply uh, uh, commending himself in the flesh um, as if he has done this. Um, and so Paul wants to make the point that ultimately, even as he talks about his ministry, he's pointing to the glory of Christ. He's pointing to the sufficiency of God that has been at work in and through him. Any good um, uh, benefits that the apostle has achieved, he wants to say, these are of the Lord. More than this, he is providing external evidence to back up his claim so that it's not what he's talking in is not merely just a declaration of, of what he is doing without any evidence to back it up. And so this first rhetorical question leads to a second. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now here, Paul is referring to the practice um, that in order to establish credibility, especially if you're a traveling uh, person, in order to establish credibility with individuals you may not know, um, it was common for travelers um, especially to carry letters of recommendation. Um, Today, we might call this uh, just providing someone a reference. And it's usually written by someone who is established, someone you know, usually has some title or position, um, some, uh, 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 in a position of authority who's able to lend to another person who may be untried or untested or just unknown a character reference or a reference about their competence. And we do this all the time. You know, hey, do you know of a good plumber? Oh, yeah, this, this person came over to my house and he was great or she was great. Do you know a good painter? Well, and then they hesitate. And then you know, okay, I'm probably not going to call that person. We do this all the time. And that was very common in the ancient world. Now, there may be a jab here when he writes, or do we need, as some do, implying uh, that these traveling teachers that came to the church they may have, in fact, been carrying these very letters of recommendation uh, uh, from others to give them credibility. 
Well, Paul doesn't have these sorts of letters. His point is that he doesn't need a letter because the church at Corinthian, at Corinth, serves as exhibit A. Okay? The church itself is all the, um, the recommendation, all the evidence that he needs um, to demonstrate the genuineness of his uh, calling and his ministry. The changed lives of the Corinthians, though no perfect people, and it was certainly not a perfect church, there was nevertheless a radical change in the lives of these Corinthians. You can imagine what their lives would have been like before the, the message of the gospel that Paul brought, um, what their lives uh, uh, would have um, uh, been pursuing in terms of just pagan religion, the worship of the, the Greek and Roman gods. Um, you can imagine that, especially in a very um, cosmopolitan city like Corinth, a wealthy city, um, that they could have pursued all kinds of materialism and all kinds of immorality uh, that would have been available to them. The mere um, uh, reality that they had believed the gospel message that they had made a commitment to following Jesus. And by doing so, this would um, uh, imply that they had renounced many of their former practices, though, again, they're far from, you know, this may not be a healthy church, but it is a genuine church. And the changes within these Corinthian Christians was real. It was perhaps weak, but it was nevertheless genuine. And so the changed lives is something that's visible to everyone, Christian and non-Christian alike. So Paul doesn't, he, he's, he has to be careful here. And this goes back to his first question. He doesn't want to take more credit than is warranted. He doesn't want to claim for himself credit and glory that rightfully belongs to the mercy and grace of God. And so he writes in verse 3, You yourselves, or verse 3, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. What he wants to say is, yes, I'm, I'm saying that you're serving as a personal letter of recommendation for my apostolic authority and for the, the genuineness of my calling. But even as I do so, let me back up, he says. Really, you're a letter that's written not by me. You're a letter that's written by Christ. You, you, the changes in you are not because of me, um, but ultimately because of the power that only belongs to God, and that only is found uh, in, in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are a letter of Christ. Uh, Paul then, um, he sees himself as an instrument that God has chosen to use in this situation. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul can describe his ministry in these terms. He says, um, I may have planted and Apollos watered, but it is God who gives the growth. And so throughout, even as this, the changed lives serve as a recommendation, Paul is careful to give the glory to the Lord. Part of our goal is to allow the Holy Spirit to be at work in spiritually reprogramming our lives, reprogramming us so that we look over time 
more and more like Jesus. He's cultivating within us a love for Christ, a love for others, and especially one another. And so we should expect the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us to uh, be genuine. Though the Spirit is invisible to the eye, the effects of the Spirit should be palpable and visible in our own hearts and then through our words, in our thinking, in our deeds, in our works. Um, There should be this kind of reprogramming that's taking place. It's not overnight. It's progressive throughout a lifetime, in fact. And it's not in a straight line. It's more like a roller coaster uh, ride. Um, Sometimes it's um, uh, three steps forward or two steps back or however that saying goes. The Spirit is working. And, um, and, and so that's a demonstration of the presence of the Spirit. And this is something that is true within a, a new covenant reality that Paul comes to. So Paul has previously talked about his confidence in accomplishing his apostolic calling. However, he comes back um, to that thought. Paul wants us to be clear that our ability to fulfill God's calling on us as individuals is not found within our own strength. Rather, he says in verses 4 and 5, our sufficiency is from God. That is, the power we need is not found in our own human strength. It's not found in our own you know, industriousness and, and our own will to be a good person, to be who God wants us to be. It's found ultimately in the power, the empowerment and the grace of the Holy Spirit. So he writes, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. And here's his point. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But he puts it simply, but our sufficiency is from God. Our sufficiency is from from God. When he talks about um, our sufficiency, he's especially referring to our ability to achieve spiritual goals. He's talking about our ability to successfully resist sin, to resist temptation, to pray with faith, to begin producing the fruit of the Spirit, things especially like love and joy and peace Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as a church, he's talking about um, uh, the church being marked by visible love for one another, being marked by joyfulness, marked by not the absence of conflict, but the ability to face conflict and to allow forgiveness to flow. He's talking about... Um, earlier, that this love, as it becomes visible, as we're reprogrammed to uh, look more and more like Jesus, we will also produce an aroma, as he described in the previous passage. It's the aroma of Christ to one another and to the world around us. And he goes on to say that that aroma has a twofold effect. It's a fragrance of life to those that the Lord is at work within, And it's also the fragrance of death. Someone um, shared that 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 fragrance of like a skunk in the middle of the road, a dead skunk. 
Um, that's that fragrance of death um, that, uh, that the work of the Spirit has as we're being um, shaped more and more into the image of Jesus. And this is not a defect in the gospel. This is not a defect in the church. This is by design. This is the way, uh, what we're to expect when the Spirit is powerfully at work within us. So how do we depend on God? How do we um, make contact with the Spirit so that the Spirit's power is at work in and through us, that the Spirit is becoming palpable and visible in and through us? Well, the New Testament tells us that there are some chief ways for connecting with the Spirit. Um, we, using theological terms, we refer to these means, um, uh, these ways of connecting with the Spirit as means of grace, means of grace. And there are a few very important means of grace. The first one is um, coming in contact with God through his word, through his written word. And, and as we do so, especially as we come in contact with the word through the preaching Paul gives special emphasis to the preaching of the word, that when the preaching is is, um, consistent with the written word, it is the word of God for us. And the Spirit uses the word of God to shape us, to continue to um, change our, our thought patterns and to work within our hearts. And then just uh, on the flip side, the, the flip side of, of the word is prayer. Prayer is this primary means. You know, if the word is the primary way in which God speaks to us, prayer is where we go to the Lord, that we are able to speak and to pour out our hearts and our pains and our desires um, and, and our petitions and thanksgivings to the Lord. It's where we are placed in touch. And prayer is also a, a way in which God's power is um, uh, made known within us. But in addition to these, the word and prayer, there's also within Christian thinking the importance of the sacraments, that there are these, these two visible um, uh, ceremonies, you might call them, within the New Testament um, that, have, uh, that even as we participate in them, the Lord allows those to be a means by which the Holy Spirit especially at work within us. The first one being baptism. That as we are baptized, God is proclaiming that we belong to him. And the spirit is, is mysteriously at work in our baptism. And by the way, just a, a, a PSA, if there are those of you here, I know that there are children here who are old enough to be baptized. And if you haven't been yet, Please come to one of the elders, go to your parents, come to me and say, hey, I need to be baptized. And, and when can we do that? So let's get that scheduled. And then the other sacrament is, of course, the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper isn't something we do only once, like baptism. The Lord's Supper is something we regularly engage in. And um, what the Bible seems to say is that as we participate in the taking of the Lord's Supper, a token feast that the Lord uses us when we enter into it by faith, the Lord nourishes us um, by the Spirit, that the presence of Christ is made um, specially uh, uh, available to us 
through and in the Spirit of the living God. And these are some of the critical ways in which the Spirit, we're connecting with the Spirit, and that that grace of the Spirit works in and through us. Now, all of those things, interestingly enough, often take place in the context not as individuals. Think of preaching. Think of our celebration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are things that take place in the context of a community, of a local fellowship, of a local church. And so our connection in, within the church and our fellowship with one another as we pray for each other, as we speak the word of God to one another, it allows us to fan the flame of the Spirit within us. And that's what we want to do is to fan the flame of the Spirit in one another. Sometimes I need you to speak the word to me. <laughs> and sometimes you need to hear the word from me or from others. Paul concludes this passage by introducing another thought that he will continue to discuss uh, through the rest of chapter 3. He needs the Corinthians to see that the universal pouring out and the work of the Spirit is in part what makes the new covenant different from the old covenant, that covenant established at Mount Sinai through Moses with Israel. And so Paul begins to zero in on the new covenant ministry in the Spirit. This is verse 6. Paul writes, God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And this kind of, then he follows it with this mysterious line. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. First, it, it's helpful to, um, to understand a little more the background of these traveling teachers. As we begin to work our way through, there are certain clues that make themselves available. Paul never tells us explicitly what, you know, why their teaching was false or what the content of their false teaching was. But what we begin to discern as we put the clues together is that those, um, uh, those teachers that, had, that were discrediting him uh, appear to have been uh, you know, what are often um, uh, referred to as Judaizers. It's a term that comes from the letter to the Galatians. That is, these were Christians, usually Jewish background, who are teaching that in order to be accepted by God in Christ— that a person had to follow many, if not all, of the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law. So, for instance, uh, they were probably arguing uh, that Gentile uh, male believers, that they needed to be circumcised. They may have been arguing that they needed to follow certain dietary um, principles with respect to the food um, uh, that they consumed. And so what these Judaizers were in effect saying is that um, in some important ways, a person needed to, to become Jewish in order to be fully Christian. They needed to obey um, uh, the old covenant um, as well as uh, placing their faith in Jesus. And so this becomes a very important and confusing theme in this New Testament period because I mean, imagine you're transitioning from this covenant made with Moses and for centuries of living with certain patterns and practices and habits. 
And then Christ comes, and it's very confusing as to what remains the same and what changes. And Paul was declaring, um, uh, by and large, that there was um, a, 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 a um, uh, that the new covenant makes the old, you, you could say the old had finished its purpose, that it had been fulfilled in the work and ministry of Christ. And as a result, as a covenant arrangement, as Hebrews um, uses, Hebrews says, that first arrangement has now been made obsolete. But these traveling teachers are arguing just exactly the reverse. Um, in a sense, the, the, many of the Jewish practices needed to be maintained in order to be right with God. And you can imagine the confusion around this particular point. And what Paul zeroes in on, um, uh, well, let me uh, go back. Paul's view and his view of the New Testament and, um, strongly rejects that these ideas, these ideas being promoted by these Judaizers, are dangerous and heretical. There were, in fact, important differences and purposes between the Old Covenant, that is, this, this solemn agreement made between God and the Israelites through Moses and all the laws that surrounded it, um, that there were very important differences between that Old Covenant and the New Covenant made by Jesus, who serves as the chief mediator. And so this is the background that spurs Paul on to contrast his new covenant ministry with the ministry of the old. And, and, I, and I believe that as he talks about the letter here, which is very confusing, um, that the letter here is referring to the old covenant, the old covenant. The next thing that's important to understand um, is that Paul, as he begins to uh, introduce this, this topic, He's alluding to two important um, promises from the Old Testament. The first promise is found in Ezekiel 36, um, verses 26 and 27. And you'll hear some of the language from this passage in 2 Corinthians. There, the prophet Ezekiel writes, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We see Paul using similar language, especially in verse 3, where he talks about um, how the spirit writes not with, um, uh, on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. And that's um, flowing very similar language as Ezekiel. Then in verse 6, he refers to a new covenant. Now, you might think that the New Testament is talking about the new covenant all over the place, but in fact, it's, the New Testament speaks of the new covenant only on very rare occasions in terms of that, that specific terminology. And this new covenant immediately um, links itself to a promise from the prophet Jeremiah. This promise coming from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And there, just to to read parts of that, Jeremiah says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. It 
it will not be like the covenant I made with your forefathers. That covenant with the forefathers being the covenant through Moses at Mount Sinai. Here, um, Paul is combining the prophecies of Ezekiel and Jeremiah into one statement, and he refers then to a new covenant of the Spirit, the new covenant of the Spirit. And part of what Paul is arguing here is, and, and really, when he, there are lots of differences that we can work through between new and old covenant, but the, the primary difference that Paul is kind of centering on here is the role and the nature of the Holy Spirit, the role and presence of the Holy Spirit in the old covenant in contrast to the role and presence of the Holy Spirit within the new And so Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that these great Old Testament promises of the coming new covenant, along with the life-giving redemptive work of the Holy Spirit, have now become realities. That which the prophet Ezekiel was pointing to and that which the prophet Jeremiah was pointing to have now become realities in and through the coming of Jesus And this new covenant, Jesus says, is ratified through the sealing um, of his shed blood. So at his death, the new covenant is um, ratified, that it is established. And so he comes to this last phrase. He has become a minister, not of the old covenant, but of the new And then he continues, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, in the context of the new covenant, the obvious, uh, so the the question is, what is, what is he talking about when he speaks of the letter kills? What does he mean? Because he doesn't actually use the word law here. He doesn't use the word, you know, um, the, the Torah, or he doesn't use the, the Sinai or something that would be specific to this Old Covenant le- language. And unfortunately, the use of this term letter has allowed for lots of different interpretations. What I think it's not saying is sometimes we speak of the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. There may be truth in that kind of statement that there's sometimes where you might break the letter of the law, but nevertheless, you achieve what the, the law intended. That may be a very wise and true principle, but that doesn't appear to be what Paul is teaching here. I'm taking this, and I'll just put it out this way, that the letter is a reference in contrast to the new covenant, And earlier, when he wrote about um, how um, uh, uh, certain letters were written on tablets of stone, kind of uh, connecting us to the, um, uh, the, the, the tablets given to Moses on Mount Sinai, that he does have in mind the Old Covenant. And he speaks of the Old Covenant in terms of the letter that kills. But then that raises a secondary question. If it does refer to the Old Covenant, in what way does the Old Covenant kill? And he doesn't tell us the answer to that, at least not here. And so all I'm going to say for now is, without explaining what he means by this, to simply accept the premise that there is in some sense in which the Old Covenant was deadly. There's some sense in which now, within a new covenant context, to reintroduce the old covenant as binding 
that this would only mean a curse for the church and for the people of God. I think that's enough for us. Um, and, And the point he's making is, you don't want to be bound. There's no need to be bound by this old covenant um, that ultimately in the life of Israel did in fact lead to a curse. It led to two devastating um, exiles. Again, these Hebrew newcomers apparently sought to impose the old covenant upon these Gentile Corinthian Christians. And while they proclaimed Jesus and the Spirit, it was another Jesus and a different spirit. That's what Paul will go on to say in chapter 11, verse 4. This means that we are no longer under the terms of the old covenant. And furthermore, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, um, who is writing God's law on our hearts so that our obedience flows from the heart. It's, it's not just flowing outwardly. It's not just, we're not just simply going through the motions to fulfill the letter um, of the law. In this context, it's interesting to read how the apostle talks about the obligation of new covenant believers in Romans 13. So just based on what we've said about the old um, covenant, listen to Romans 13. This is verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The one who loves uh, uh, another has fulfilled the law. And then he goes on to cite ways in which this love is to be directed The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now you think about how that would sound to a a person coming out of Judaism who very strictly followed all of the commandments down to the, the, the minutest detail. And to hear Paul say, no, this is how we're now going to understand law following uh, within the new covenant, is that it's the Spirit writing um, uh, the law on our hearts. And that law can be summed up in the law of love. Um, it's love towards God first. And here Paul's saying that love for God is expressed in love for one another, and love for our neighbor. And if we're pursuing that love, um, and we're doing so with a growing knowledge of the word of God, then we have fulfilled the law. Circumcision, all the dietary practices, certainly all the temple and sacrificial practices are now obsolete, having been fulfilled in Jesus. And we'll talk more about why uh, the old covenant is now obsolete. But nevertheless, how the moral will of God does, in fact, continue. Let me go back and just summarize the first two points. (laughs) We need to appreciate the gift and blessing of the Holy Spirit as members of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit is poured out on all God's people, regenerating them to new life and being made visible in and through us as we are conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. 
appreciate the role of the Holy Spirit, especially within the new covenant in which we find ourselves. Well, let's pray. Lord, I'm reminded of Peter who spoke of the writings of Paul as often um, difficult and uh, in some ways confusing. And so, Lord, it is our desire not to distort um, what is a very challenging passage. And so, Lord, we pray that slowly and progressively that your Holy Spirit would be at work in and through us that your Holy Spirit would give us insight, that your Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth um, uh, that flows from your word. And indeed, Lord, it is our desire to look and to be the aroma of Christ as we love one another and as we love our neighbors as ourselves. And so we ask for your help in this, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.